This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am so delighted to be here with Sarah Hurwitz. Sarah is a graduate of Harvard and Harvard Law School and was the head speechwriter for Michelle Obama from 2010 to 2017. She also worked with Hillary Clinton on the campaign, John Kerry, and Wesley Clark. In her capacity to, as an advisor to and writer for leading Democrat political leaders, Sarah was named one of the 50 most influential Jewish Americans by The Forward in 2016. Three years later, in 2019, she published a magnificent book, which I recommend to anybody who's interested in Jewish ideas, Jewish topic, Jewish searching, anything related to Jewish life. And the book is called Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. In addition to the book being such a critical success, it debuted as the number one new release overall in the Jewish life category on Amazon and was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in multiple categories. So it's such a delight, Sarah, to have you on with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I love the topic of this podcast and I'm, I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, thank you. So before we get into uh, your chosen passage, which uh, people can turn to Exodus 3, because that's the passage Sarah chose, after serving uh, for so long in, as a speechwriter in government, in public life and public service, why did you decide to write this book about Judaism? Yeah, you know, I had grown up without a lot of Jewish background. And for me, Judaism basically amounted to these two kind of dull, long, incomprehensible services at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And so once I became a bat mitzvah, I just thought, okay, enough, right? I've done it. I don't have to actually engage with this. I might be Jewish by heritage or culturally Jewish, but if I want to find meaning, purpose, spirituality, connection, I'll have to look elsewhere. Fast forward 25 years later, I broke up with a guy who was dating at the age of 36. I had all this time on my hands and I happened to just on a whim sign up for an intro to Judaism class just to fill time, figured it wouldn't hurt to learn something about my heritage. And I was really blown away by what I found. There was so much wisdom here for how to be a good person, how to lead a truly worthy and meaningful life, and how to find spiritual connection. And I just, I started learning. I took another intro class. I read hundreds of books, started attending week-long silent Jewish meditation retreats. And what I found was that while there were some really great introductory books that kind of cover the nuts and bolts and the how-to, and there were these very, very sophisticated esoteric academic books, there really wasn't a lot in the middle for someone like me who you know, needed to learn the basics, but also really wanted the deeper, edgier insights. And that's the book I decided to write. Very interesting. You know, one of the many insights that you've made in discussing this topic is uh, just relates to um, how little so many American Jews know about Judaism and about how so much of how American Jews relate to Judaism is through what is sometimes called cultural Judaism or even ethnic Judaism and how that's such shallow water. It really is. I mean, it's, and look, it's understandable that 150 years ago, we kind of 
you know, seem to kind of make a bet on Judaism as, you know, an American style kind of peoplehood or ethnicity, which Jews are every race and ethnicity. So the idea of a Jewish ethnicity is not really a thing. But we really have focused for the past century or so on peoplehood, on feeling Jewish and having a Jewish identity. And you know, that's fine and important. But in America, that's really a three to four generation bet. You, know, you don't encounter a lot of Americans today who's core defining identity is being Irish American or Italian American or German American because they've reached the third or fourth generation. And when I hear Jews saying, well, I'm, I'm a cultural Jew, you know, I'm, I'm, you know my, my grandmother is Jewish, I think it's similar. And I don't think that's going to sustain Judaism. You know, I think, you know, ethnic identities, they wane in America. And so I think that we're going to have to know something about Judaism. And fortunately, there's so much wisdom about what it means to be human that's so relevant and timely right now. The corpus of Jewish learning is so interesting, so instructive, and so relevant. The idea that we need to go away from Jewish learning to find things that are relevant just uh, is just not the case. It's 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 all there. The questions and sometimes the answers to almost anything confronting one in life is very accessible. It's in the Torah and the commentaries, just waiting for us to unearth it. Exactly. And look, you know, if you're the kind of Jew that I I was for. 36 years, you know, I showed up twice a year and showed up for a Seder. You don't necessarily see the really radical, transformative, powerful wisdom of Judaism in those points of contact with Judaism. I don't think that's necessarily our most accessible work. And so I think that once you start actually learning as an adult, you find wisdom that is just very relevant to your daily life today. I think that's a great point about uh, Russia and Yom Kippur not being our most successful work. If, if someone were to come to me, well, Sarah, let me ask you this. If someone were to come to you and say, I'm only going to do two Jewish things a year, what should it be? What were the two things you'd give them be? Oh, wow. I would tell them to take an intro to Judaism class or some kind of class to fill in their knowledge gaps. And I would tell them to read one of several books that I would choose for them that really uncover what I think are the deeper insights of Judaism. That's what I, I think if you're going to just do two things and you're, and you're a Jew like I used to be who doesn't really know much, I would start with, with the exciting ethical and spiritual wisdom of, of Judaism. Yes, uh, I, uh, there's so much to that. I think I would pick uh, Shabbat and Pesach. Hmm. Russia and Yom Kippur would, would be in the top 20, but <laughs> Shabbat and Pesach, and then definitely Jewish learning, and then so much else will follow. So thank you so much for writing this book, which really has served exactly the purpose that you said. It's, it's, it's such a pathway into Judaism for those who grew up and were just otherwise not exposed to much rigorous Jewish learning on one extreme and on the other extreme, kind of the esoteria that's available, if not accessible, but, and you've really filled that, that gap. So when I asked you which passage uh, you wanted to talk about, I was also delighted that, that you chose such an awesome passage, Exodus 3. Yes, this is a good one, right? This is a good one. So what happens, um, what's the context of Exodus 3? What happens right before and then what happens at Exodus 3? Right. So right before Exodus 3, we are we've learned in, in the end of you know, we've learned that the, the Israelites have been fruitful and multiplied in Egypt. And Pharaoh is not thrilled about this and is, is uh, kind of out to get them. And in Exodus 3, God comes to Moses at the burning bush and he basically gives Moses this mission to go and rescue his people in Egypt. And I find this passage to just this whole section of this story to be incredibly moving for a number of reasons. You know, first of all, I love that Moses just argues with God. So, you know, if God shows up to you and, and gives you a mission, you would generally think people would be so overwhelmed with awe that they would just say yes if they were able to say anything at all. And, and he argues and says, I'm not worthy. 
Exactly. He says, no, 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 you've got the wrong guy to God. Right? It's like, hey, all knowing, all powerful being, you messed up. You got the wrong guy, which is just that's something I love about Judaism is the human empowerment. Right. The, the expectation that we are supposed to use our, you know, our divinely given, some believe, brains and free will to actually make an argument. And I love that he does that. I also love that when Moses says, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm slow of speech, I'm slow of tongue, meaning, you know, I, I think something that that means he sort of has a speech impediment. He's not a great communicator. You know, God essentially responds to him like, who do you think made that tongue? <laughs> like, who do you think makes makes human beings mouths and tongues like I made it? right? Like you were created like this, which I think is an incredibly moving thing to say to someone in a moment where they are feeling a lack of confidence or vulnerability or somehow incapable of fulfilling a mission that they've been given to actually have God saying to Moses, like, I created you like this. You know, I find that very moving. Beautiful. That's right. You know, I also just appreciate the the complexity of the conceptions of the divine that are in this passage alone. You know, already in the Torah, you have a God who's very powerful and can smite people. And you also have images of a God who is being totally caught off guard by these human beings that he's created and they're doing things that he doesn't even anticipate. So he's not so all powerful, right? You have this theological complexity, which is something I love about Judaism, the fact that we have the humility to not create some dogma or definition or creed of God, which is really idolatry when you think about it. If you're going to say God is this and wants this, well, really? You you think you can do that? I, I you know, that, that gets a little dangerous. And I, even in this, just this passage alone, you see God who says, when Moses asks God what his name is, God replies, I will be what I will be, <laughs> which is like, you know, it's like unreliability. It's, it's unpredictability. It's constantly changing. It's in the future. It's in the future. That's right. So God says that I will, I will reveal myself in the future and there's no ending to it. In other words, I will always be revealing ourselves. And I think that's one of the beautiful really lessons about Jewish life is that it's never over. It's never finished. We can never be satisfied. Life is lived in the future. Right. And and the entire project and process of Judaism is for us to continue hearing revelation in our own time, right? Interpreting our sacred texts, reinterpreting them, sort of understanding that, that divine voice, if you want to call it that, in our own time, through our own humanly, you know, our, our own intellectual and, and moral capacity. And I think it's it's funny, you know, you have this image of God that's very, that's unpredictable, that's unknowable by human beings. But as my friend Rabbi James Jacobs and Maisel points out, in that same passage, you also have God saying to Moses, I will be with you. And that is, that's predictable, that's reliable, I will be here, right? It's like two totally different conceptions of what God is in the same passage. And I, I just, I love that we have the humility to acknowledge that we cannot you define God in one simple way, that, that we're talking about something that is so much more complex and so big and vast and beyond the capacity of our tiny human minds to grasp. So I, I really appreciate that. And I, th- I think you made a, a great point too, that God is constantly surprised in the Torah by what people do. Uh, yes. So if, if we on earth are surprised by what somebody does, and we say that people are so complicated that I don't understand what he did, what she did, or I don't understand what I just did, God is just as confused. Right. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, I think some people kind of find this a little bit disconcerting, but, you know, I appreciate it because, you know, in the end of the day, I don't read the Torah literally like a historical account or a scientific account. You know, I read it as a as a story, as a metaphor, as human beings who are trying to write down in words and images and stories their own experiences of the divine. So I think if you take it literally, 
you're kind of missing the point. It's really not meant to be understood that way. You know, this is human beings just doing their best, doing the best they could to capture their experience of the divine, which is complex and kind of hard to capture. But I think one more thing that I love about this passage is there is, uh, I believe it's a midrash, which is sort of a kind of like an ancient Jewish kind of imaginative story that these ancient rabbis used to articulate. And actually people continue doing it. You can still do it today where they kind of imagined, they kind of filled in the gaps in the Torah by imagining what might've happened, you know, kind of the story behind the story. And there's one midrash that says that when Moses was at the burning bush, it asked, well, what did the voice, what did God's voice sound like? And the answer was that it sounded like Moses's own voice. So he was almost hearing this charge from God, this mission for God, as, as if it were his own inner voice, which I think is a really beautiful way that people, you know, when people talk about feeling like they're called to do something or having an intuition, you know, are they maybe saying, you know, you could put that in religious terms or spiritual terms and say, you know, I feel that God has called me to do this. It can be a little dangerous. I'm, I'm always a little uneasy when people do that. But I do think there's something about the power of your own inner voice, you know, leading you forward to do something. I, I find that idea moving. Yeah, so let's actually discuss the uh, the burning bush, which is how Exodus 3 begins, where Moses is uh, shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he comes across a bush in the desert, and it was burning in fire, but he notices something. He notices that the bush was not consumed. Yes. So what do you make of the fact that Moses is wandering in the desert, probably in a place where he's wandered many times before, he's been a shepherd for his entire career, so to speak, he sees a common sight in the desert, which is a, a bush burning, but this time he stops and he notices something. Right. And, you know, it's such an interesting moment where he has to, you somehow have to get his attention. But you're, you're right. If it were just a burning bush, I mean, I'm sure that's not an unusual sight in a dry, windy desert, but it wasn't being consumed. This is something kind of out of the ordinary. And I think, you know, when I think about, when I think about the divine, I, there's a rabbi named Arthur Green, who I love, who has just this beautiful passage in one of his many excellent books, where he talks about these moments that we all experience that just feel different. They feel transcendent. You know, he talks about the moment your child was born, or when you held the hand of a parent as they took their last breath, or a moment you were staring up at the night sky and just feeling so tiny in this infinite universe, or you had a moment of deep connection with another person, or had kind of an insight that felt like it kind of came unbidden. And he says, like, you, you notice this because it's just, it's different. It has a different quality to it. And he kind of says, you know, can we think about the divine as being possibly located in those moments of transcendence? And I think that this strikes me as one of those moments where there's something unusual here. Now, this is more kind of old school miracle, right? Something totally impossible is happening here that kind of gets his attention. So it's not quite the same valence as those other moments I was talking about, but it's something unusual. It's something miraculous that, that has to get, like God has to get his attention somehow. And God does it this way. Yeah, he certainly does. But also I think Moses should get some of the credit because Moses was the one who stopped and noticed something different in his world. He gave the world, he gave, in, in this case, the bush in the world, he gave the bush attention. And it was by that gift of attention that he was able to notice something significant. If he had gone past the bush and said, well, I guess this is a normal occurrence, he never would have had that transcendent moment that you talked about. You're right. I mean, he was, he was present. He was very much present in his surroundings and noticing what was going on around him. And I think so often we're not present. If you think about when you've walked from your home to the grocery store or you've driven somewhere and then you get to your destination and you think you have no recollection of the journey or you're sitting at you're sitting at a meal with someone and they say something, they say, so what do you think about that? And you just say, oh God, I'm sorry, I don't, 
I don't know, because you weren't there, right? You weren't present. Where were you? Well, you could have been ruminating about the past, wishing you'd done something different last week, could be planning for the future, planning your, you know, your grocery list, a memo you have to write. You're just not present. And I think that there are rabbis who I really respect who talk about a real sense of radical presence, actually noticing reality as it's unfolding moment to moment is a way of being more connected to the divine. It's a way of being flush with the divine. If you think that the divine infuses everything, that's that's the case. And I think, you know, Moses in this moment of being present, you're right, he noticed it. And when you actually, I've attended week-long meditation retreats where you really are training your mind to be very present moment to moment, and you do start to be kind of awed by things around you, just a leaf, you know, a rock, a running brook. It, it, you're kind of moved and awed, and you, you notice things that you wouldn't normally notice. I think it's beautiful. And, and this is really the training that God is is giving Moses and through Moses and through the story, all of us. And I also think it's interesting. So after the bush is burning and it's not consumed, God calls out to Moses and Moses and Moses replies, Hineni, here I am, the great response of presence. And then God says, do not come closer to here. Remove your shoes from your feet because the place you're standing is holy ground. Now, it was the same ground before. <laughs> right. So what made it holy? And the only difference is that Moses paid attention. So it was the act of Moses paying attention and thereby engaging the divine through his attention and through his presence that the ground became holy. In other words, God said it was holy ground, but it didn't seem to be holy before Moses, in partnership with God, made it holy. That, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that so many Jewish practices are designed to do exactly that, to call us into presence, right? I think that the, the idea of creating the sacred is actually, in many ways, about creating this more intense and focused kind of presence. You know, if you think about our Jewish blessing practices of saying a blessing to express gratitude for the food that we have, that's actually saying to us, stop, notice the food, actually be grateful for it. You know, blessings that we say to celebrate something beautiful in nature, or even after going to the bathroom, it's a moment of saying, stop, be present and be grateful. I mean, Shabbat is like the ultimate totally. practice of being present, right? It says, get rid of everything that is taking you away from presence, your screen, your work, your consuming and producing, just take that all away, all of these distractions and create this sanctuary in time, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel calls it, where you are just deeply and radically present. And you're right, that is a way that we create the sacred, is through coming into that kind of presence. And it's and it's each of our choice. It's not like there are some things that are inherently sacred. It's it's our partnership with God that makes them sacred. As you said, that's that's the whole point of a blessing. You know, you say a blessing over an apple and therefore you have a sacred experience. But if you took the apple and you threw it at your brother, you wouldn't have that sacred experience, even though it's the same apple. Exactly. And, you know, there are people who kind of, you know, they kind of diminish this or mock this. It's like, oh, come on now, this apple is sacred, you know, and I get that. But I don't know, you light a cake with candles and sing a song once a year. Right. Why, why do you do that? Is that just sort of nonsense? No, you're saying this is a special occasion. We are making this moment special and maybe not sacred, but special. I don't think it's any different when we create you know, sacred moments in Judaism through rituals that we're performing that have been done for thousands of years and that have traveled many, you know, so long to reach us today, you know, those rituals, they do create a different feeling, a different kind of space. And they're designed to call us to presence and to you make us feel feelings like gratitude, awe, and connection. So I think there's real power to that. Yeah, I think it's a great point about the birthday cake. I mean, when people, when, when secular people say special and religious people say sacred, they're saying exactly the same thing. Totally. And I, you know, and I think that's true in so many ways. You know, I have a friend who's a very religious Christian 
And she will often say to me, you know, God put it on my heart to do X. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I heard God telling me to do Y. And I, I get a little bit uneasy, right? As a, as a Jew, that that kind of language just it feels makes me a little uneasy. I think it can lead, you know, in her case, she's wonderful. So God is always telling her to do these like kind and loving things. But there are people who say that God tells me to hate gay people. It's like, nope, I'm pretty sure God's not doing that. I'm pretty sure that's just you wanting to hate people. But how is it different? How is her saying, God put this on his heart or God called me to do X? How is that different from me saying, you know, I just had this gut sense that I should do X, right? I had this intuition that I should do Y, or I felt called into this career doing Z. Are we talking about something similar, just using secular versus spiritual or religious language? And and when your friend says that God put something on her heart, she's actually making a very Jewish statement because it says in, in the Shema, these words shall be on your heart. Now, people can ask, well, why not in your heart? What's the point of it being on your heart? Because in order for it to get inside of you, you have to open it up. Right, right, exactly. So you have to open your heart. It's just sitting on the outside until you decide to open it and then it can come in. I think it was the Kutzker Rebbe who was asked, uh, you know, this is a great question that, that that almost all children will inevitably ask is, is where is God? And, and kind of the standard answer is God is everywhere. But the Kutzker Rebbe said, God is everywhere you let him in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think prior to my learning and discovering in Judaism, you know, I was someone who just thought this whole God thing is kind of nonsense, right? It's like, you know, what, there's a man in the sky who controls things like, no, I'm sorry, that's not true. You know, I, I see the way the world is, that just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I felt like I really had a barrier to that. But I think that once I was exposed to the many, many Jewish conceptions of the divine that are bigger and deeper and more sophisticated and and more plausible to me, I was moved. And it does, you know, a rabbi friend of mine refers to it as having like a seventh sense. And to me, it feels like it's just another dimension has been added to my life to have this sense of something bigger, to have this kind of spirituality that has been enabled by me studying what Judaism has to offer, which I think has sort of made me realize, okay, you know, the idea of God as a man in the sky, that's for kids. But I think for adults, we need something deeper. And it is there in Judaism. Right. It, it, it's there. And, and I think as you demonstrated so magnificently, it's it's there and it's accessible. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. You don't have to have a lifetime of yeshiva learning. It's it's there for everybody to love, learn and live by. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's I don't know if I would agree that it's always so accessible. You know, I'm pretty, you know, I've got the degrees I've got, you know, I'm a pretty competent, pretty disciplined person. And it wasn't easy for me to access uh, a lot of the Jewish spiritual and theological thinking, it does tend to be a bit dense. It can be sometimes academic the way it's stated. You know, it was harder for me to find more accessible sources. And I'll be honest, you know, I've read Christian writers like Anne Lamont or Nadia Bowles-Weber, and Nadia Bowles-Weber is a Lutheran minister, a Lutheran pastor. And, you know, their stuff is very accessible and quite moving. You know, it, it's, and I think the whole, you know, Christianity as a proselytizing religion is designed to be very accessible, right? They're, you know, you're trying to reach people and convert them. It needs to be something that you can clearly communicate. Whereas with Judaism, we don't proselytize. So we don't have a lot of practice in kind of simplifying and clarifying and making Judaism very accessible. And that's okay. You know, that part of the reason why I wrote my book was to do that, to not lose the depth and the substance and the complexity, but to translate a little bit to make it accessible for myself and others. But it was definitely a challenge. Yeah, I remember, so we, we do Torah study every Saturday morning. And I remember several years ago, it struck me where three of the people who came regularly, my friend Jessica, Matt Harris's daughter, my friend Erez Kalir's daughter, and my son, they were all six. And they were all really learning Torah. I mean, we don't believe in children's books pretty much for 
anything beyond like age two, but really learning Torah, really learning the text with adults at six, not really five, but at six and certainly older, they were participating. It just occurred to me, this book is awesome because it can be appreciated, understood, and lived by on different levels, but the children can participate along with the adults. And where else can you have that experience? I think that's true. You know, these stories are stories that you can tell to children and they can kind of appreciate the the drama of them, the the miraculous nature of them, right? They, they can kind of appreciate that at, at a child's pace and some of the lessons in them. Whereas I think adults can really appreciate the more sophisticated, nuanced lessons they offer. And, you know, the Torah is, it's just so open for interpretation. And there's very, it's really sparse. There's very little detail. You have to fill in so many gaps, which obviously as Jews, we have done for the past 2,500 years. We have millions of pages of commentary trying to figure out what was this book telling us. But yeah, it's a very rich text. Right. So uh, Sarah, thank you for just a a fascinating and such a rich conversation. And um, just one more question. So the uh, writer Andrea Malru wrote a a book in 1968 called Anti-Memoir. And uh, he told this story of running into a man with whom he served in the war. And he said, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a priest. And he said to this man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. He said, one, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> wow. So in, um, in, in your uh, career uh, as a, a speechwriter, as an advisor to presidents and presidential candidates, and as an author of this book on such a profound Jewish book on really the deepest Jewish subject and speaking about it so widely, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Mm, Wow, that is a very deep question. The first thing I think I've learned is that people really do have tremendous capacity to grow and change. And it's often incredibly painful and incredibly difficult, which is why I think so many of us, you know, including me, we resist it. But I think if we're willing to open ourselves up, if we're willing to make ourselves vulnerable and to admit to ourselves that we've been on the wrong path, that things aren't working out and we need to do something different, you know, I, I've seen that moment lead to some just tremendous things in people's lives whether they're willing to change. And, and they can, so they have to be, it's like we are talking about before, they have to open themselves up to the possibility of change, give themselves permission to change, and then incredible transformations can happen. Exactly. I think I've also learned in the past few years that as a, a colleague of mine in the White House, Josh Ernest, once said, he said, people say that adversity builds character. And I don't know if that's true. So I'm not sure if that's true, but I do think that adversity reveals character. And I think the past few years in America, where we've had a, a leader who I think has been really, just, I don't even have words for how horrifying he's been. I think it's really, you know, his leadership or his lack of leadership has really, and, and whether people support or don't support him, I think it's it's just shown, it's, it's revealed something about us as a society. I think it's revealed something about a lot of people. Um, I think that adversity has, has been very revealing. So I, I do think adversity, more than building character, which it may or may not, I do think it really re- reveals character in people. Very interesting. So Sarah, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. And again, I would just like to encourage anybody at whatever part they are in kind of their self-identification as a Jew in their Jewish journey. I know, Sarah, that's an expression you don't like. <laughs> Jewish journey. It's a little little touchy-feely for me. I don't know. But it's, you know what? It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I just can't think of a substitute, but I do agree. I know. I 
can't either. But, um, uh, you know, wherever anyone is on their Jewish journey, because I think we're all on a journey. This is a, just a tremendous book. Again, here all along, obviously available everywhere, recommended as strongly as we possibly can. So, uh, Sarah, thank you for uh, such an interesting conversation and such a great book. Thank you so much, Mark. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for having me. You are the-